Welcome to the Pattern Podcast from KXE in London. As a church, we want to learn ways of being with Jesus, becoming like him and doing the things he did in order to see this city we love transformed. This podcast is a resource to help us explore these spirit-filled patterns of living and start putting them into practice every day. The topic for this podcast is the practice of love, and it was a complete privilege to be hosted by Canterbury Cathedral and spend time with Bishop Michael Curry on his recent visit to the UK. Bishop Curry is the presiding bishop of the Episcopal Church in America and captivated millions the world over with his address on the subject of love at the wedding of Prince Harry and Meghan Markle. At one point in the conversation, he quite literally left us speechless, which is terrible interviewing technique, but the result of a stunning vision for the difference love makes in the world. We hope you enjoy the conversation as much as we did. Bishop Michael, thank you so much for spending time with us today in the beautiful surrounds of Canterbury Cathedral. We really appreciate it. Glad to be with you. (laughs) It's it's really fun. We're um, today talking about the practice of love. Mm -hmm. Uh, And after hearing a sermon at the Royal Wedding, like many millions others, we thought there's probably nobody better to talk to about it. Uh, So we're really excited for the conversation today. But before we get there, Uh do you think we could just pause a little bit on the actual spiritual practices themselves and just ask you a little bit about your understanding of the role of the spiritual practices and our daily apprenticeship? to Jesus in the mundane mm-hmm. parts of everyday life? What's their role in how we follow Jesus? You know, in a, in a very mundane sense, spiritual practices are, are like exercises to keep the muscles of your body in tune so that they're able to function. They're, they're, they can be feel like routine sometimes, and sometimes they can become that. But there's something that we do with a regularity, with some sense of personal organization or discipline that um, over time... Um, strengthens, if you will, the spiritual muscles. It strengthens the relationship. Um, one of the things I've learned over the years as a, as a parish priest of many years um, was that, you know, for couples in marriages, um, that over the years you've got to practice your relationship, um, um, especially after you have children. Uh, you actually have to practice your romance because the children take center stage. And so you have to find time when you intentionally go out to dinner or intentionally go to a movie or intentionally do whatever it is as a way of practicing your relationship so that you keep nourishing that relationship. Mm-hmm. Spiritual practices are how you actually nourish in an intentional way your relationship with Jesus Christ. That's it. They're the connections to God that are intentional, time-tested. I tell folk back in the States all the time, I said, these spiritual practices have been around for centuries. Mm -hmm. They are old. Silicon Valley has to beta test (laughs) stuff before they come out with a new iPhone, and they have to let people try it out. Well, I'm here to tell you, meditation and and prayer um, are spiritual practices that have been around a long time. Jesus was using them in the Garden of Gethsemane, getting ready to get crucified. Mm-hmm. Uh, Moses was using it on Mount Sinai before he went down and told old Pharaoh, let my people go. Mm-hmm. I mean, these spiritual practices have actually been beta tested a long time. Yeah. And, and they actually put us in the orbit, in the somewhere in the orbit of God's energy and life. And my experience has been, I don't always feel God when I'm doing them. But every once in a while, every once in a while, Something happens along the way where I actually am aware of God's presence, sometimes in the moment of, you know, studying, wrestling with scripture or something, or sometime later when something I've been praying about or something I've been praying over or something I was journaling about pops up and makes sense in a way and in an occasion that I just never expected it to. That's what spiritual practices are about. They actually 
there's a hymn that says, draw me nearer, nearer. I don't know if y'all sing that one. Draw me nearer, 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 precious Lord, to your blessed, sing, precious. Can you sing it? Uh, you change. probably don't want me to sing it. That's a spiritual practice that I don't have. <laughs> it's sort of like, draw me nearer, nearer, blessed Lord, to thy precious bleeding side. Come on, come on. It's a great, it's a great old hymn. Yeah, it's one your grandma used to love. You know, it's that kind of hymn. But, but there is something about these practices that draw us nearer into the presence of God. And sometimes we're aware of it and sometimes we're not, which is the way it works. And all we have to do is every once in a while become aware of it or every once in a while become aware of what I was praying about, what I was meditating on, what I was just sitting silently with somehow has a relationship to what I'm actually living, maybe long after you've been engaged in that practice. But the regularity of them really does, there's something about routines that are helpful. Mm-hmm. Love that, thank so you so helpful. much, it's so clear. If we if we zone now in on the practice of love itself, mm-hmm. uh, love is a word that's kind of so familiar to us all, right? It's used so casually often, um, mm-hmm. that it can lose its sense of significance mm-hmm. or impact. Can you help reorientate us a little today and give us a sort of theological, biblical framework for what or even who mm-hmm. love is? Yeah, you know, it's, it's funny. I mean, unfortunately or fortunately or unfortunately, in English, we have one word for love, love. Mm. That, that's it. I mean, um, other languages actually have more possibilities um, and more options. And certainly in the Greek language of the New Testament, I mean, there are several words that are used, but the three that are most frequently used are eros, philia, and agape. And, and they're all love, but they're different nuances or angles of vision on love. Um, um, eros, we get the word erotic from that. That's romantic love, um, uh, romantic attraction. Um, um, philia um, is uh, brotherly or sisterly. It's fraternal love, if you will. We have a city in the States, Philadelphia, the city of brotherly love. I'm not sure that the name matches the city, but that's, not, that's <laughs> another another issue. And then agape, which is, which is um, sort of un- uh, detached, if you will, on the, the most unselfish love that you can imagine. Um, when Jesus says greater love has no one than this, but that they give up their life for their friends. That's that's agape. Agape is is um, uh, concerned almost more for the well-being of others, sometimes than even the self. It's sacrificial love. Um, now, those are all nuances. They're all love. Um, and real love, I mean, like that hymn, Ubi Caritas, uh, where true love is found, God himself is there. I mean, that's a medieval hymn. That's mm-hmm. nothing, we're not inventing anything new. Where true love is found, God is there. If it's real love, God is there. And and if that's the case, God is there in all those manifold forms of love. But the practice of love um, really is, for the most part, let me, let me say it this way. For a long time, I've been wrestling with what is the opposite of love. And if you'd asked me, 10 years ago, I would have immediately answered, well, the opposite of love is hate. Now, that's not wrong, but actually there's something deeper going on. The opposite of love, the more I've thought about it and the longer I live, the opposite of love is selfishness. It's self-centeredness. And you actually get a little glimmer of it in 1 Corinthians 13, um, you know, which is always read at weddings. Well, I don't know if it's always read, but it's read a lot of times at, at, at weddings. Um, but if you look, you know, where it begins, um, 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 
how does it begin? Love you remember? Uh, yeah. Um, love is patient. Love is kind. All that kind of stuff. But it begins, um, if I speak with the tongues of men and of angels and have not love, I'm a noisy gong, a clanging symbol. Mm -hmm. And then in the, and then it ends. Now, faith, hope, and love abide, these three. But the greatest of these is love. But in the middle, love is patient. Love is kind. Love is not jealous. Love is not boastful. Love does not insist on its own way. Love does not rejoice in the wrong, but rejoices in the right. What you have there are descriptions of the opposite of self-centeredness. Hmm. That's what love is. That's what, when you really look at biblical love, uh, whatever the words and the nuance, that's what love actually is. It is unselfish and sometimes even sacrificial living. Um, I don't think it's an, I'm coming back to the, the, the practice. But it's not an accident that in John's gospel, and to some extent in the other ones, Jesus talks about love more frequently the closer he gets to actually being willing to give up his life wow. on the cross. In John, all of his teachings, except for John 3.16, all of his teachings about love are at the Last Supper. A new commandment I give you, that you love one another. Chapter 13, that's the Last Supper. He's heading to the, he's making the decision or has made the decision to give up his life, not for himself, but for others. That's love. That's real love. Greater love is no one than this. Now, I, myself, I'll speak for Michael Curry. Hmm. I don't by nature <laughs> think of you first and me second. Most of the time, I'm going to think of me first and you second. Now, there are other times when I'll, you know, but most of the time, and that's true, that's, that's just normal self-interest. And, and I suspect, I'm sure it has something to do with our animal past. And, you know, when you're in the forest, you really better be paying, out, paying attention. <laughs> um, but, 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 but if you want to help me to live a life that is not self-centered, but actually where Jesus Christ, where God is at the center of my life and love is the way that I live my life, then I need something to help me daily decenter myself and recenter God and his way of love at the center of my life. And I have to practice doing that. Mm. I don't just do that on automatic pilot. Mm. I got to practice doing that. And so that's, that's why love is... Um, you know, many times love is a sentiment. Love is actually a practiced commitment. And, and it requires spiritual practice um, to continually do that. Um, a, a story that, that um, um, goes back to 1963 in the United States um, during the civil rights struggle. Um, there was a, a, a 1963 in, in the summer, um, one of the cities that um, they really needed to work to desegregate because um, he had segregation of races, mm. to desegregate, was Birmingham, Alabama. And I have family and kinfolk in Birmingham. But Birmingham was really the epicenter. And, and Dr. King and others who were involved in the movement there knew that if they could make a dent in segregation in Birmingham, they could, it would have a ripple effect. I mean, civil rights movements are like military campaigns. You've got to figure out where do you strike mm. that will have effect um, mm. in the broadest way. Well, they knew if they could get Birmingham desegregated or moving in that direction, it could have an effect throughout the South and eventually throughout the nation. And they were right about that. But Birmingham was intractable. I mean, it was intractable. The sheriff in Birmingham was a guy named Bull Connor, and he was Bull. He was aptly named Bull Connor. And um, it was tough. Birmingham was the place where 16th Street Baptist Church, uh, where the Klan 
uh, blew up the church Sunday morning, four little girls who would be my age today were killed. Mm -hmm. um, there were more lynchings and killings in Birmingham. In fact, in the civil rights movement, people used to refer to Birmingham as Bombingham. I mean, that's how, how, how tough it was. And so in training the nonviolent resistors or protesters, um, they had training in nonviolence and how not to retaliate in kind, how to what to turn the other cheek look like in a nonviolent campaign. Um, King constantly emphasized that, that we are here as an act of love. Um, and our nonviolent way is the way of love in this context. Um, and so he, he drafted what, what some of the followers today um, say they, they jokingly referred to as Dr. King's Ten Commandments. And they were just kind of ten spiritual principles that said things like um, 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 the, the goal of, of the civil rights uh, nonviolent protester um, is not victory. The ultimate goal is, is reconciliation. Mm. Um, the, our way is the way of love because God is love. Show everyone the ordinary rules of human courtesy and decency that you would for any human being, uh, because that is God's way. Um, and it goes on and on in that kind of spirit. Um, but the first one, and, and they talk about love over and over again. The first one was, before you march, meditate on the life and the teachings of Jesus. Wow. The insight there is that by staying focused on Jesus, on his teachings, on his way, on his living spirit, his living reality, that he can help you become more than you would be on your own. And the irony is, I mean, th this is the irony is, we have to practice it. We don't get it right all the time, none of us do. But practicing it, you get farther than you would not practicing it. The miracle is that by removing self from the center and allowing God, the God who the Bible says is love, allowing God to take the center of my life and therefore that way of love becoming my way of life. I don't actually lose myself. I discover my true self because the Bible says my true self was made in the image of God. And the Bible says, God is love. The miracle is that you don't lose. You win big time. That's the practice of love. Wow. <laughs> Sorry, Speechless. Sorry. Speechless. Oh, okay. Oh, we just I gave our lives to Jesus again, right? Yeah. Oh. Wow. That, I mean, that's, that's yeah, it's absolutely beautiful and like it's a beautiful and captivating description of love you've just given us. Mm. Um, and I'm just thinking that that's not often the concept of love that we hear. Like, can you describe some of the common misconceptions of love, particularly around like this thing of like, how is it different from the feeling of love? Yeah, and, and the feeling of love, there's nothing wrong with that. That's, yeah. Oh, good Lord, there's nothing wrong with that. Um, it, but, you know, even if you think of romantic love, I mean, just start with romantic love. I mean... I mean, that's an attraction. That's like, I've been around people who have been married a long time. And they're not cute like they were when they were young. In fact, I've seen them when they've been sick. I've, I've seen them when, one is, when they've been hurting. I've seen, I mean, I've seen folk like that. And I've seen 
people who kind of make it through. I mean, marriages are not easy because it's two people. Anytime you get two people, you got work to do. <laughs> you know, that's just normal. That's just normal. But, but I've seen them when they're not cute anymore, when they're not, you know, they're not young anymore. And yet the love is still there, but it's not, it's not just eros and romance. It's a deeper commitment. No, it's a commitment on one level. It's like these two lives have been knitted together in some strange way over time, sharing experiences, you know, getting sick of each other and then missing each other, you know, all the stuff that goes with being human. And somehow all that stuff about two people becoming one, you can kind of see, oh my God, that's what the metaphor is talking about. Two lives have become intertwined. Something that started as a feeling started as a physical attraction or a mental, whatever it is. I mean, a platonic something that moved to something, whatever. But it became deeper and richer. So the feeling's not bad. That's, that's okay. But when it gets deeper and richer, you actually do see, I've seen it in people, I mean, where this, like these two lives have become one. I mean, I, I, a good example, a friend of mine just um, just died, um, a fellow priest who was was assistant with me when I was a rector of a parish uh, before I was elected uh, bishop. And he was actually the person who organized when I got elected bishop, you know, to get the robes and all the stuff that bishops wear. And, 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 and he, you know, made, got it all done and got people making and all that kind of stuff. And he just, just died a couple of weeks ago, uh, a week ago, rather. And I went and buried his wife a year ago. Um, and I, I don't remember how long they had been married, but they had been married easily 50-something years. I mean, a long time. And when Mary died, everybody who knew the two of them said, Ron isn't going to hang around. But he, he, he's, he, everywhere. I remember saying it to my wife. I said, he's not going to live much longer. I don't know. He wasn't sick at the time. I mean, he had Parkinson's and was shuffling and all that kind of stuff, but you could live a long time. He died a week ago. Mm -hmm. And almost, not this exact same time at her death, but close, not that far. You know, now he wasn't consciously doing, but there was, there was something about their lives were so intertwined. Um, and in some way he was dependent on her and she on him, but there was, there was something, an intertwining that happened. Well, when they first started dating, I bet he just thought she was the prettiest thing he'd ever seen. <laughs> and that's about all he was thinking about. And she thought he was the cutest thing she'd ever seen. And that fear, and then a feeling came and an attraction, the attraction led to a feeling and feeling led to some kind of commitment that neither one of them probably really understood what they were committing to, but they did it anyway. And then over time they lived together and they had all the struggles that are a part of a life of being married or being in a relationship with anybody else, uh, all that stuff. And over time they kind of hung in there and two became one. So what started as a feeling and moved to a commitment became a new life with all the struggles that are a part of life. So feeling's not bad. It can lead to a new life. The problem is if that's all it is. <laughs> and imagine what happens when our feelings about God, that's why a relationship with God and Christ is not just about feelings, but it needs feelings. And like I said, there's nothing wrong with a little religion with a little feeling. I mean, it's nice to feel something, um, but that can't be all that it is. It needs to be more than that. That feeling can lead us to deep thoughts and, and deep thoughts and those feelings of faith can lead us to a deeper relationship. 
And that relationship can lead to life together. And imagine what that is when that is life with God. So good. If we could um, shift now from almost talking about <clears throat> what love is and the practice of love is into the difference that it makes. So what, what difference does it make? If you look first on, on the person who's experiencing the practice of love. So mm-hmm. um, what difference does it make? On the person when, himself. Yeah, uh, no, on the, yeah, on the person experiencing it. When, you, when, when they experience love, what difference does it make in someone's life? Well, you know, I mean, in, in a very simplistic way it just feels better to be loved than not to be loved <laughs> i mean really just yeah. just basic there's something and i don't think that's an accident i i don't i when i was uh bishop uh before i became presiding bishop when i was bishop of north carolina this, the diocese of north carolina um we had a a, a ministry which really was bigger than the church uh, but it started out as thompson orphanage and then became Thompson Family Home. It was an orphanage back in the 19th century, I guess. Then became Thompson Family Home. And I've forgotten the full name now. So I think it's Thompson Family Services. Um, and most of it's a child and family services. And most of its work is with children who are profoundly abused, who have been profoundly abused um, and, and entered into the foster care system where the government has had to come in and remove them from homes. I mean, these are children who have been really harmed. I mean, really harmed, sometimes as infants. And I remember one time going to, going to visit, and um, they had gotten a new device, and I don't even know what it was called, but it was a, um, it almost looked like a hammock, only it was made for little ones, um, for children who had never been cuddled, had never been held by their mother. Um, and it was to recreate as much as possible the touch of a mother and a human being needed to be nearby so that that child could experience the sensation of being rocked and comforted. I think a person was with holding them, but it was also in the the hammock or whatever the thing was. And, And they said it took a while, but it did help children who had been deprived of love to experience the physical sensation of that. That's not an accident. Human beings, if God, if First John chapter 4, verse 7 through 10 is true, as I believe it is, which says, Beloved, let us love one another because love is of God and those who love are born of God and know God. Why? Because God is love. If that is true, as I know it is true, then that means we have been made by the hand of love. And if we have been made, if every one of us have been made by the hand of love, by the hand of God, then that means we were made by love, for love, to be loved, and to love. And we are at our functional best when we live in that love and the fullness of that. And we are dysfunctional when we don't. <laughs> it ain't rocket science. <laughs> it's not. And so I don't remember what your original question was, but I was enjoying whatever. <laughs> <laughs> we were enjoying it. We were enjoying. <laughs> what was it? It was essentially we're looking at the two sides of the same coin, really. How, what difference does it make when you are right. loved? But what a difference, I suppose, now does it make when, as we learn to practice this selfless way of love, self-sacrifice way of love that you've talked about? It makes how a difference to me, as well. yeah, to, yeah, to us, to the person who is loving, yeah, because we are closer to being whole and fulfilled in a loving way than we are when we don't. Hmm. I know when Michael Curry is off kilter, 
when he's not operating out of the loving side of Michael Curry. Mm. It doesn't even feel good. I don't know if you've ever tried in, in Galatians where they have the virtue and vice list, you know, uh, the bad stuff, you know, jealousy, anger, and all that kind of stuff. And then you have the virtue list, love, peace, joy, contentment, all that kind of stuff. If you just read, I remember I was doing a Bible study once and I said, let's just read the words of the vice list. And and as you read them, your stomach even kind of feels a little weird. It's like, ugh. And then you read the good stuff. And you know why? You, I mean, it's not a great spiritual experience. It does feel better. Mm. There's a reason for that. We, we are made to be loved and to love. And therefore, we have a sense of fulfillment, even if it's hard, when we're living in that love ourselves. Um, and, and we don't as much when we're living in the opposite. We don't. Um, I think that's true for most of us. Um, and we feel better when we are loved than when we're not. Um, uh, now, the, the flip side is also true. Um, because I, my experience, and I, I really, I, I've seen it. I don't think anything has been accomplished for human good apart from love. I, I really don't. Um, again, if we move love from being a sentiment to a commitment to a life, a way of life, an unselfish way of life, uh, think about the people who've made a difference in human life and society for the good. They have been people who very often sacrificially um, sought the good and the welfare and the well-being of others, um, sometimes even above their own, sometimes. Um, there's been no social good, whether it is in the scientific realm, whether it is in the social and political realm, um, whether it is in any any realm of human endeavor, whether it's been in the personal lives of people. Think about the people who've made a difference in your life. I mean, just think about it. I mean, I think about the ones who've made a difference in my life. They've been people, and I may not have been aware of it, certainly as a kid growing up, they've been people who cared about me. They didn't love me necessarily for what they were getting out of it. They got something out of it, to be sure. But they actually were looking for the welfare, whether it's a teacher, a parent, some coach, somebody who cared about you enough to invest in you. Mm. And they didn't necessarily invest in you for what they could get out of it. That's love. Mm. Um, people who sacrifice. I used to be a police chaplain when I was a parish priest. Um, you know, and I mean... <laughs> I remember some law enforcement people who would almost, sac well, I actually remember some who did sacrifice their lives for people who they didn't know. Mm -hmm. That's love. Um, people who actually give their lives to, to noble callings, um, you know, where they don't make a lot of money, but, but they, they do something worthwhile. That's love. See, that's why I'm moving beyond feelings, mm -hmm. beyond sentiment even beyond sometimes commitment to a life, a way of life that really does seek the good and the welfare of others. That's what love looks like. And it's why I have to practice spirit. I need spirit. Michael Curry. I won't talk about anybody else. Michael Curry. Oh, <laughs> uh, got to pray. <laughs> yeah. uh, so yeah, it's good. Um, so what, what do you think is possible in our, our wider communities, our neighborhoods, our cities, our institutions, even our nations, mm -hmm. if the church practices love? Oh, Lord. Oh, oh! if, if, if we could just get the church mm -hmm. to love, if we could just get that. I'll, I'll, I'm not talking about anything here in Great Britain. I'll just talk about America. If we could get folk and Christians in America to act like Jesus. To love like Jesus. The Bishop of Atlanta says our goal is to create a community of people who love like Jesus. 
Well, if we could get, I'll just say Christian, we get Christian folk just to love like Jesus, the church would be a whole different reality. And when you think about the folk who are in church, they got some influence. They actually have some impact. They could be game changers. They could actually, they could actually change the way the game is played. Um, I mean, I really do. And, and if you broaden it, the nice thing about love is it's an equal opportunity employer. Um, <laughs> it knows no religious boundaries, knows no political boundaries. I mean, the way of love comes from the heart of God. And we've all been made it by that same love, which means the possible capacity to live the way of love is possible for all of us. So what would happen if we could just get religious folk, Christians and other religious folk? Okay, whatever else we got, we're going to start with love. We're going to start with unselfish, sacrificial way of love as our way of life, because that most closely reflects God's way of life. If we would just do that, do you know what 90, uh, but somebody said recently, 90 some odd percent of the people in the world are religious. Well, if religious folk acted like they loved, we'd have a different world. Mm. We really would. That sounds naive and simplistic, but guess what? It's true. Mm. <laughs> so, so it's so compelling. Why don't we? You know, what are the, if we looked practically at this for a minute, like what are the things in us as humans mm. that when it's so clearly the best way to live and we transform the world, like what is it in us that holds us back from doing it and causes us to live in ways that aren't loving? Now that's a good question. The power of selfishness. Hmm. The, the, the power, I, mean, I think, I mean, I think it's part of the answer. I'm not sure I know the full answer to your question, but I do know that the, that the power of selfishness um, is real. And I think part of that is because there is, there is a healthy place for a healthy self-love. There is a healthy self-love. I mean, I think when Jesus said, you shall love the Lord your God and your neighbor as yourself, clearly love your neighbor as yourself. He was speaking about loving your neighbor as a good and positive thing, which means loving yourself as a good and positive thing. Mm -hmm. So Jesus was clearly almost creating a triangle of love, God, neighbor, self. That's a healthy love. And I think that's necessary for healthy functioning. I mean, I mean, if you hate yourself, you're going to hate other people. <laughs> you know, I mean, if you're dysfunctional in yourself, you're going to be dysfunctional toward other people. That's just that's just how it, we project all the time. That's how it is. But so I think that's built into us, and that I think that's part of God's design. That we, if you love God, then you love what God has made, and you happen to be one of the things that God has made. So it's not complicated. Yeah. But if you, if you push it even a little further, and again, I'm not a biologist, so I'm getting a little bit afar afield. <laughs> but what little bit I know about human nature and about animal nature is um, that there are survival instincts in us which are necessary. Um, again, we don't live in the wild anymore. But, but when we did, your survival instincts, the, the reptilian side of your brain, um, had a necessary function in evolution. Um, it actually served to protect you when there was danger around. Um, so there's a there's a self-interest, survival instinct that's part of it. I think when that self-interest and survival instinct 
gets hold of us and takes over and becomes dominating in our life, then it's all about me. Mm-hmm. And you see, I survive. It's kind of like, I don't know, y'all have the TV show uh, Survivor. Is it on TV here? Yeah, we have it. it yeah. Is it still on? And the goal was to survive by kicking everybody else off the island. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I mean, there's, there's so, when that side of the brain, of the soul, if you will, takes over, and it's all about me when I am the center of my world. I'm the center, not God, not Jesus, not love. When it's me, then you are on the periphery. And I think that instinct that on the one hand is important when you're in, if you're living in the, in the forest um, and you've got to keep your eyes open for predators, um, gets perverted and distorted when it becomes the way of living. And I think it is so powerful. It is such a powerful force in us mm-hmm. that it it keeps it can keep love at bay because mm-hmm. love will look the way of love will look weak compared yeah. to it. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I mean, I, I've been with powerful people, mm-hmm. powerful people, political people, economic people, powerful people, and I've seen them cry. I've seen them cry when Mama dies. So I know there's a heart Hmm. underneath that hard shell. But sometimes you feel that in a world of competitive selfishness, Hmm. the only way to survive is by engaging competitive selfishness on its own terms. Hmm. And that's why Jesus and people like him Hmm. have said, no, it doesn't work. Hmm. Love your enemies. Hmm. Bless those who curse you. Hmm. Love your neighbor as yourself. We know we've, we've got to finish up soon because we've used up a lot of your time. But just oh, can yeah. we finish on this one? Like, how might we then take the first steps, waking up tomorrow, to push against that selfishness, that mm. pull, and towards this life of love? Mm. I, now that's where um, I, I don't do it every day. <laughs> I, I, I get it done mo- most days um, after I've done my morning prayers, a morning uh, devotion, and usually I have a pattern. I mean, I have a I mean, I do it for a while, and then I decide, do I want to do another pattern of prayer and study of scripture and that kind of stuff? Um, but but right now, I'm in a pattern of, you know, I do my morning prayers and morning prayer. I kind of do a formal thing, you know. I use a book. and Well, I do it on my phone, but I mean, <laughs> it's, on, it's on the app. I mean, it's, it's right there. But but I do kind of morning devotions and that kind of stuff, and I'll read, but and then I'll study a book. I'm usually studying a particular book of the Bible. Um, right now, I'm going to Gospel of John and getting ready to do that. And just stay in this however long it takes me. To study it and read it and ruminate on it. Not, you know, sometimes I write notes and sometimes I don't. I'm not that good at the. I wish I was better at journaling, but every once in a while I'll write something down. And uh, but I do that for a period of time, and then I decide. Okay, now I don't know what's going to be going on this day, but is there one thing I can say I'm going to try to do that really does reflect the love of God? And I look at the, somebody, I look at the calendar and. Hmm. And sometimes I come up with something profound. Sometimes it's not particularly <laughs> edifying or uplifting. But I try to connect the practice of my spirituality with the practice of my life intentionally at the beginning of the day with some kind of resolution that's not made so that I got to feel guilty when I don't do it, but that's made that focuses me on a Godward direction, which I might not have otherwise. And so it's kind of a resolution for the day. Mm-hmm. And, and sometimes I do it, sometimes I don't. And no need, I don't get bent out of shape if I don't. Mm-hmm. Um, but sometimes, sometimes, remarkably, you do. Um, and 
And sometimes, I mean, for I'll give you a good example. I mean, I did this a while back, and I try to practice this. I don't always do it. But I say, you know, I spend a lot of time on airplanes. And I remember one day deciding that I'm going to always, I mean, I usually did kind of speak to the flight attendant, you know, when you're getting on the plane and that kind of stuff. But I'm going to always speak to the, you know, the ticket agents and the, the people that I know I'm going to run into at the airport getting on a plane that I'm going to always say hello to them. I'm going to always say thank you to them, you know, when I get off the flight. It's not a big thing, but you know what? And the cashiers at the grocery store. That I mean, it's actually moved me to a more intentional graciousness that it's not that I'm a bad guy, but sometimes when you're in a rush, you're not thinking about the people you rush. You know, it's just human. And and that's actually become a practice. That started with me deciding, you know, I need to thank people on, you know, when I... So I just make a little daily resolution. It's a lot easier than making one for the whole year. Uh, <laughs> it's just a little daily resolution that comes out of And if I don't have one on a given day, I don't worry about it. Hmm. I mean, sometimes you don't. And that's all right. Don't worry. The spirit got to be with you. There'll be something you're supposed to do. You just didn't know what it was. Um, so that's been my little way. I mean, you can create your own little ways of kind of moving um, toward that. There's a, a way of praying, of reading the Bible, of reading scriptural passages, and especially of gospel story, uh, you know, the, 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 what do you call it? The old African method of study. Um, what, um, what did Jesus say? What do you think the first readers who read this, what do you, what do you think he was saying to the church? What, what would they have heard? Imagine just fantasize. What do you think they would have heard in the first century? And what do you think he's saying to you or to the church today? Again, a moving from um, a spiritual engagement, a spiritual where the word becomes flesh and dwells among us. And uh, that kind of thing, I found that that helpful. But, uh, you know, there's some days when you're on the mountaintop and it's glorious. And other days, <laughs> there's all spiritual that says, way down yonder by myself where I couldn't hear nobody pray. <laughs> and that's all part of the spiritual journey. That's just kind of, it's up, it's down, and it's plateaus and stretches in between. But if you hang with it long enough, there's a relationship going on, um, a relationship with a God who hangs in with us through the ups and the downs, the valleys and the mountains, and those long, boring plateaus in between. Uh, thank you so much. Thank you. God bless you. God bless everybody who will hear this. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you for listening to the Pattern Podcast. If you'd like to explore more spirit-filled patterns of living, head over to pattern.org.uk.